Welcome to the Food Fight podcast brought to you by EIT Food, the world's largest food innovation community improving food together. I'm Matt Eastland and as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us. With our 100th episode just around the corner, and I cannot believe we're almost at this amazing milestone, I thought it'd be a really great time for another instalment of one of our big takeaway episodes. So these big takeaway episodes are our opportunity to really reflect and look back at the smorgasbord of moments from the past year, if you will, that highlight the breadth of the illuminating and really urgent conversations that have taken place on this show about the health and sustainability of our food system. And there is plenty on the menu today. So we're covering topics like diversified proteins, food inequality, regenerative agriculture, food loss, and even gender bias in the food system. But for starters, I wanted to jump straight in to some of my favourite tech innovations we've heard about in recent shows. Menutech is a software to automatically generate food menus that are allergy-friendly for restaurants, hotels, as well as hospitals and care homes. At RootWave, we use electricity to kill weeds without any agrochemicals. So Red Sea Farms develops technologies to enable agriculture on marginal lands using resources that haven't traditionally been tapped. So one of our claims to fame is that we use salt water in a lot of our systems. Integrated Aerial Systems is a licensed drone service provider based in South Africa. Our core focus is to use drone technology in the agriculture sector to help improve farming practices while building a more efficient and sustainable future. We want to make gut health as habitual as brushing your teeth and they will know instinctively about their microbiome and I think that's the thing that excites us most at the gut stuff. Pure Algae has developed a controlled, land-based, modular designed and vertically scalable cultivation system for growing seaweed. The primary benefit of using Satagro is getting a clear picture of what's happening at your farm. This can be achieved by analyzing and transforming satellite images of your fields. At Torres, we've developed a system to increase the chilling of food, poultry, and fish, to increase the shelf life of the product, reduce food waste, eliminate bacteria in the process, and deliver a fresh product to the consumers. The platform that we've created is something designed that is, allows users to set goals. So it includes a habit tracker, for example, and an online community. So with the platform, we help users to adopt healthier habits, achieve personal goals, and also get rewarded. So I think some of the things that have really stood out for me, looking back at all the tech and the innovations we've had, is just how some of these entrepreneurs and innovators have really taken sort of existing simple solutions but applied them in a really clever way. So RootWave stood out for me and still stands out for me, actually. And I know that they're doing really well in EIT Food and beyond with their technology of taking electricity and using electricity to actually kill weeds. So the great thing about that is it's very simple and of course, it's super sustainable because you're not using lots of harsh chemicals on the soil. I mean, there are so many, but I guess the other technology or company that's really stood out, you heard them there, so Red Sea Farms. 
So these people are really looking at growing food in harsh environments. And it's a topic that we've looked at briefly before, but actually the idea of using salt water and sunlight together to create and grow foods in the likes of deserts, for example, or places where water is super scarce, I think that's really exciting because one of the things that we have an awful lot of on this planet is salt water. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about what uh, Red Sea Farms are doing. And then finally, just one of my favourite warmest episodes, I think, from the whole season. So you also had uh, Lisa McFarlane on there from The Gut Stuff. So I really recommend you check out that episode. Lisa's one of the Mac DJ twins and she's just absolutely fascinating and really engaging. You know, so if you want to know anything about the gut microbiome, she is definitely the lady to go to. So uh, check it out. As you can imagine, sustainability has continued to be a huge topic on the show. Now, I've heard many shocking facts on this podcast, but the ones that I can't get out of my head are from the Driven to Waste report by WWF and Tesco, where they stated that 2.5 billion tonnes of food is currently wasted on farms around the world each year, and approximately 40% of all food grown goes uneaten. This was from episode 77, Food Loss in Farming, where we were joined by WWF and Oddbox. The episode really highlighted that consumers are becoming a lot more aware of food waste at home, but are much less aware of the rising issue of food loss at the farm level. And I have to admit, even from you know somebody who is constantly talking to entrepreneurs and innovators in the food space, it's a topic that I just wasn't as well informed about as I wanted to be. And I really, really think that everybody needs to be thinking about not just food waste. So that's the waste in you know our homes, you know, throwing old food away or going bad because it gets uneaten. It's also about what happens right at the start of the farm. So there are lots of food which is just seen to be too ugly or inappropriate to be sold in stores and just genuinely gets wasted and lost on farms. And it's really tragic and it's something that really kind of touched me on the show and I really want everybody to know a bit more about this topic. So do definitely have a listen because it was a you know fantastic episode. One potential way of dealing with this sort of, let's call it more secretive issue of food loss at farm level is by turning our attention to regenerative farming practices. And I really wanted you to hear this conversation coming up, which I had with the founder of the Sustainable Food Trust. And I think he's now referred to almost as like the regenerative farming godfather, Patrick Holden. And also uh, he was talking with one of my colleagues from EIT Food, our agriculture project manager, Philip Fernandez, about sustainable farming practices and the impact that this could have on our planet. I think this is the age-old question, could regenerative farming feed the world? And the really super honest answer is we don't know. But a better answer is, yes, we can, or yes, we could, if we wasted a lot less food, because 50% of all the food, or up to 50% before and after the farm gate, right through to the fridge, is wasted right now. And in the circular economy, nothing should be wasted. So we waste a lot less we eat differently, as I was saying earlier, and we align our diets, our future diets, to what the regenerative farmers will produce in those proportions. And then we farm with this new knowledge of ecosystem management, informed by, you know, research and innovation, which is going to lie ahead of us, 
if we do all those things, I think absolutely we can scale this up. And it's this is the big challenge for big food companies like, you know, Nestle, Unilever and the big retailers. They're at the beginning of a new uncharted journey with a map which doesn't yet exist. And we've done a brilliant job of totally industrializing and centralizing our food systems. We've gone right to the end. We couldn't go much further. When, just to give you one example, most supermarkets only have one abattoir now to slaughter each species of animals. So in the case of lambs, they might all go to one abattoir in Wales, even if they come from Scotland. And it's the same with vegetables. You know, if you, if I used to grow carrots on a big scale for supermarkets, but then they closed down all the backhouses in the west of England and Wales. So I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. So I was having to drive my carrots 230 miles to get them packed. That's got to be reversed. We've got to have family, independent businesses that produce food, retail food, process food. And we absolutely can do it. And I'll tell you why we can do it, because there's no alternative. We've got to do it. So it's exciting. Exactly. When people ask me, can regenerative agriculture feed the world? I've kind of turned the question around and say, can conventional farming continue to feed the world? So oh, yeah, first see, of all, I, I think yeah, mm. we can't continue the way we are right now. But secondly, I don't think that we have a problem right now with food shortage. Actually, the biggest problem we face, especially in Western societies, is obesity. It's not undernutrition. It's malnutrition, eating poorly. So we have plenty of food. It's just a question of getting the food to the people and getting nutritious food to people. If we look at the examples of regenerative farming, and if we're seeing that there are specific examples where farmers are regenerating the land, yields are not declining, they're diversifying their crops, and therefore their risk. They're not producing toxic waste. Their input costs are coming down. This can be extended to other farms. So I, I think, yes, it, it can be scaled. And I think there's also the importance of technology. We work at EIT Food. We're focused on innovation. Whereas many of what we talk about is very location-specific, there are other things that can be scaled. There's technology available now, the developing technology to read carbon content in the soil by satellite. That can be an incredibly useful tool going forward. You're doing uh, improving the, the environment. And if a satellite, or if you can get information that says, this is how much soil organic matter you created. This is how much carbon you sequestered. And maybe you can even get paid for that social good, that environmental good that you're doing. So that's something that can be scaled. And then there's also a recent technology now to with what they're called spectrometers, some sort of uh, device that can read the nutritional content of the specific food stuff with a scanner. So if on the one hand, we can see that regenerative farmers are increasing soil organic matter, and we can see immediately you know, what the nutritional value of that food is in the grocery store. Look at a carrot and say, this one has twice as much vitamin D as this one. Which one am I going to buy? That's something that will have a tremendous impact on regenerative farming. It was really fascinating to hear Patrick and Philip's sort of clarity of vision here, I think. So, you know, Patrick was really clear on the fact that we have to waste less. Then we have to eat differently. And then we need to farm with what I think he's referred to as like new knowledge and in harmony with tech, which is interesting. So, you know, he's obviously all about in harmony with nature, you know, as part of everything he does. But actually integrating new tech into regenerative practices has real potential to scale up the approach of regenerative agriculture and sustainable farming in general. So I think for me, that was a real sort of highlight. Another theme which sort of came up here and has come up in many episodes 
it was this whole theme about industrialization of agriculture. You know, it's something that worked for us in the past and was necessary, but actually people don't think this is going to be the solution going forwards. And I think Patrick said it himself. He, he really doesn't think there is any alternative. And also what Philip said about, you know, changing the question around, you know, rather than talking about all of the solutions that we might have, it's actually just asking yourself a simple question, can conventional farming continue to feed the world? And I think if you go at things from that angle, that probably changes the thinking there. So yeah, really a lot of which came out of this conversation was about, you know, better soil, better community, integration of tech, and then scaling this space up, which was really, really fascinating. And, you know, to solve the issues like food loss and sustainably feeding the world, it's very clear that it's about changing our thinking and not just in the decisions of letting something go to the bin, but it's also to do with understanding and appreciating the value of what we have available. The other thing that Philip picked up on there in, in the episode was he mentioned the importance of nutritious food, providing better choices for us all too, and the challenge of obesity. And this reminded me of a really poignant discussion my colleague Lakshmi and I had on episode 85 with Dr. Gunhild Stordalen, who's the founder and executive chair of the EAT Forum, and also Anjali Vyas, who's the branding expert at Planet Nourish. So the episode was really about making better choices and how to achieve the ideal diet. And during this episode, they touched on something very significant, which I really just had to share with you again. We are constantly surrounded by cheap, ultra-processed, ultra-irresistible foods, and we don't need to do anything but pick up the phone to get it delivered on our door. And we're talking about the obesogenic food environment, and I'm always saying that today it's almost impossible to stay healthy and make sustainable choices when it comes to food. The default is to be fat, sick and depressed because of the food we eat and also obviously very unsustainable for our planet. So this is the result of well, lack of governments governing and lack of the right policies in place uh, and lack of true costs of food accounting. So it sounds to me that it's not really the Western diet being so unhealthy. It's like the modern Western diet. So where do you think the Western diet went wrong? Where did that transition happen from being diverse and sort of suiting the needs of the individual, the diversity of the Western population? Where did we go wrong? Uh, well, I think this is back to the, to the Green Revolution and where it was all about producing more and more calories, thinking quantity, not quality and policies in place to really scale up production of cheap food. And obviously it started in the in the US and has spread like a wildfire around the world. We are talking about the nutrition transition uh, where populations all around uh, the world are now moving away from their uh, scarcely processed diets, mainly plant-based towards ultra-processed Western eating patterns. And again, I think this is really where governments have not taken responsibility. It has been the food industry that has been let alone to do whatever they want. And obviously cheap ingredients, pushing more products to more people, uh, increasing portion size, really without the proper uh, policies and regulations in place. I guess it's that double-edged sort of industrialization, right? It was there. It was needed. You know, if we, as we got out of World War II to 
produce world food quickly and cheaply. But then I guess we just took it too far and we made it a very industrialized food system has become quite negative and unhealthy for us. Anjali, sorry, did you want to add something? One of the issues I have with when we talk about Western diets vis-a-vis sort of Eastern diets is the fact that it doesn't take into, first of all, we're labeling, we're using a label culture to go Western and Eastern diets, which I think in this day and age is a very, I don't think it's the right way to label diets because the is, I think it's the diet of speed is essentially what we're talking about because in the last 10 minutes, all we've talked about is industrialization, industrialization. If we go back to the Western diet, let's say European diet, sort of a hundred years ago, we knew what we had. We, we know the grains that we were had where we were eating local grains, we were fermenting. We had ancient processes that were utilized based on the climate that we had, based on what was locally grown. So I would say it's the diet and culture of speed that has really sort of found its way into our global nervous system when it comes to food. So when we think about India right now as the Indian subcontinent is the fact that India, for example, is having the same disease of this culture of speed. So the diet that used to support everybody before was a local diet. It's a seasonal diet that really still supports everybody because the seasonality is so aggressive. But the culture of speed, and because there's a population of over a billion, it has to support people at different levels of that ecosystem. And what we'll generally find at Planet Nourish is that it's the people that are at the top part of this food chain that have a sedentary lifestyle, that are able to have access to a lot of the resource and be a part of the speed are the ones that are having the most detrimental health impact within their communities. So I think when we think about the characteristics, it's not labeled with anything. The problem has been speed and money and revolution Mm. after revolution that we've had, which I think is changing now. Uh, We are having conversations to look at different ways in which we can think more locally. But like Gunhild said, it said that we have siloed policy. Policy isn't made in collaboration. Departments are still siloed within government. So as a consumer, you will look to your government and you make an assumption that obviously on the outset, if a new policy comes out, everybody is working in collaboration internally, but that's not actually what happens because you have an obesity policy here, a nutritional policy here, and a net zero policy here, and they're all siloed, there's gaps. So the reason for me that this was such a standout episode is it was just so brutally honest. And I think it was really good in many ways just to kind of have that honest conversation between two obviously very expert and knowledgeable people. And it was a real eye-opener. So, you know, they they spoke about the fact that the diet we're adopting now, certainly in the West, really is coming down to speed and money. They spoke about the fact that seemingly you need to be wealthy to be healthy and sustainable. And also what you heard then from Gunhild was that, again, very brutally honest, but at the moment the default we have is to be fat, sick and depressed. And the fact that the majority of people opt for the cheaper option because there aren't the choices available. And we don't necessarily value the food that we eat, which obviously needs changing. I I do think it's important though, and again, this whole piece around where we've come from came up, it's important that we put this into context because we've got the systems now in our food sector They were absolutely needed during the Green Revolution after World War II that Gunhild mentioned. And they served us really well then, you know, the focus on quantity and calories. That was absolutely right. 
But it's just that they're not going to serve us well now. And I'm sort of reminded of a, a quote from somebody. It goes something on the lines of what you did in the past won't get you where you want to go in the future. And I think that is absolutely true of the food system. So definitely that whole sense of we need to reset and change how we think about our food. And then just, I think both Anjali and Gunhild also pointed to the need for government help, which is needed to force through this change and prevent the silos which are apparent in order to maximise the impact. And I think that the sort of the takeaway from that show was really that if people don't have the healthy choices available, then they're simply not able to make those better choices for their health. So for me, that was why it was amazing to hear across so many of our podcasts in this season about the great work that's going on in this space to raise awareness about healthy food and lifestyle choices. So Gunhild spoke there about the Lancet report, which I really encourage everybody to read, you know, about the kind of global diet that we should all be adopting. We also spoke to Gerda Verberg from the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement in a previous episode 79, where we were talking about food inequality and the many health and well-being startups we've had on the show promoting healthy diets such as NutriLeads and BU. And this leads us really nicely to talk about innovation and new food formulations. So could this be the solution for saving our health and producing food sustainably? So we've spoken a lot about diversified proteins on the show. And by that, I mean the full range of alternatives to traditional meat and fish. So from plant-based to fermented microproteins, algae, and the new wave of lab-grown meat or cellular agriculture as it's becoming termed. And there's lots of potential in this category to combine both sustainability and healthy options in one wholesome bite. So I had a really great chat with Alison Still, who's the co-founder and CEO of Walding Foods, and also Paul Shapiro, who's CEO of The Better Meat Co. And they were talking about unlocking the potential of alternative proteins. Just to kind of set the context for our listeners, so the size of the global plant-based meat market is estimated to be over, well, about 3 billion in 2019, and that's going to continue to grow, I think, forecast around like 13 billion by 2027. So that's quite an impressive year-on-year growth rate of, what, about 20%, which is great news, but it's still small relative to the global meat market. So I think that one of the studies I've looked at estimated was worth over 800 billion in 2020, and it's set to rise to well over a trillion dollars by 2025. So quite a big difference. With those stats in mind, I guess my first kind of big opening question for you both, in your own words, why is it so important that we shift towards meat-free now? Alison, maybe if we can start with you. I think people are ready. People are ready also because they focus more on eating healthily and they focus more on eating naturally as well. So it's not only about the meat, it's also about really focusing on your health. And that's something that we should take into account when we think about the shift from meat to meat alternatives. Because people are ready to eat healthily, they're also more ready to skip the meat. That's just one aspect. The other aspect is, of course, that there are more and more grueling reports about animal cruelty and it is just more and more clear because of climate change as well that we have to find a different way of living great got it thank you and and paul do you think people are ready for this now 
I do, Matt, and I'm in concert with, with, with what Allison just said. And just to supplement her very final point, I think it's important to remember the planet is not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet itself isn't getting any bigger. And, you know, we already have nearly 8 billion of us walking around on the planet today. And by 2050, we're going to add another couple billion more people, presuming there's no catastrophe that strikes before them. So how are we going to feed all of these incoming billions of people, many of whom want to eat meat? We all know already that it just takes a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of animal cruelty, as Allison mentioned, to raise and slaughter all these billions of animals animals for food. And it's just a really, really resource-intensive way to produce food for humanity. The problem is that even though you're right, Matt, that demand for plant-based is increasing, demand for meat is also increasing, both on a volume basis and on a per-person basis. And so we have to find a way that satisfies the meat tooth that people have, so to speak, without raising and slaughtering animals. It's kind of like, you know, we have to find a way to provide us, let's say, with light that we can flip a switch in the room and lights comes on, well, we want that light, but we don't want it to come from fossil fuels, right? We want it to come from renewables. Well, people want meat just like they want a lit room, but they don't necessarily want animals to be slaughtered for it. And so if we can create meat-like experiences without the need to raise and slaughter animals, it'll be better for everybody, both those animals and humanity at the same time. Do you think then up until now that the main challenge for the alternative protein industry is that it's struggled to make anything that's been genuinely tasty enough or as tasty as meat? I mean, is that the kind of key critical challenge that the alternative protein industry has to overcome? Okay, yeah, the short answer is yes. So, you know, for a long time, for decades, in fact, the alt-meat industry was really trying to create foods that were almost like a consolation prize for vegetarians, right? So you go to the barbecue and they don't have anything for you, so they throw this on. And it's good. It's good for vegetarians. That's great. But until the last five or so years, you haven't really seen products that are intended for carnivores, for people who really want the exact experience of eating meat without necessarily all of the baggage associated with it, whether it's the high saturated fat and cholesterol, the animal cruelty, the greenhouse gas emissions, and more. And so increasingly, what we have seen is a shift in the alternative protein sector to go from producing foods that are, you know, they taste good and they're cool, but now to one where the foods actually are mimicking meat. It's kind of like if you imagine the difference between, let's say, electric cars, right? You know, in the past, they were not as good as regular internal combustion engine cars. You know, they had a short distance that they could drive, all these other problems. But as soon as you get to a place where they actually are equal or better in performance than internal combustion cars, and you can get them to be cost parity, that's the real game changer. So one problem, Matt, has been what you identified with this uh, textural issue. The other is price, that even today, plant-based meats are still sold at prices that are substantially higher than conventional animal-based meats. And so I think that the industry has made a lot of progress on the taste and textural issue. And it's making progress on the price issue, but there still is some way to go before plant-based meat becomes cost competitive with conventional meat from slaughtered animals. So that was episode 83, where we were discussing naturally meaty meat alternatives with Paul and Alison there. I think the real standout for me from that episode, I think Paul really highlights the elephant in the room in this debate, which is the fact that you know, I think it's becoming more and more obvious to people that actually producing meat in the conventional way is actually a very resource-intensive way of producing uh, meat and protein. But the challenge there is that, you know, meat demand is on the rise and people still want to eat meat. So 
he spoke about creating what he said like meat like experiences and he pointed to the fact that you know it's the exact experience of eating meat without all the baggage which i just really like which i think is why this space is growing so rapidly and you know paul's work that he's doing in the better meat company is interesting because he's helping people transition from you know eating meat 100% Actually, what he's looking to do is work with companies who are keen to blend 50% of his riser mycoprotein plant-based alternative with meat, which I think is a very smart approach because I think it sort of speaks to the fact that we are in a transition phase as a world. You know, you know people still want to eat meat. And Alison's story was also really fascinating. So she's actually found a way to develop a really interesting uh, mushroom, a fungi called chicken of the woods, which to all intents and purposes is meant to taste just like chicken. And her backstory about how she came across this and decided to develop it, it started off in a garage. It's that, that classic sort of startup bootstrap approach is really interesting. And somebody who's obviously seen like a need and decided to go after it. So I'm really interested to see how Alison and her team gets on. And I still can't wait to actually taste Chicken of the Woods, so that's still on the list. I think what we all need to take away from this is that we all need to get on board with diversifying our protein intake, for sure, because it's going to help our health and it's going to help the health of the planet. So, you know, that's a definite must, I think. And, you know, people are doing amazing work in this space and definitely coming from places that you wouldn't naturally expect. And it's this sort of outside the box thinking that is coming up with products which might actually work to help fix the food system. And you only get that by thinking differently and including everyone in the conversation and the process. And this leads us on to another episode where, you know, we're talking about ideas coming from a diversity of places and people. And supporting diversity is another really big thing for us at EIT Food, which leads us on to a very important conversation focused on really getting to the bottom of gender bias within the food industry. And this is something that I personally feel very passionate about this topic and is one of the reasons that I'd really like you to hear some of the conversation. So we recorded the episode with food entrepreneur Karen Karp, who's the president of KK&P, and investor George Coelho, who's the co-founder and partner of Astonor. And they are both at the forefront of pushing for positive change in this space. If we go back to the beginning of the emerging sector of agri-food tech and agri-food tech investing, the people that came into the sector were largely coming from tech and science backgrounds and not necessarily from agriculture and food business backgrounds. An exception to that in some degree were women who were working or were, were experiencing something very close to the consumer side and wanted to improve something for themselves, their community, and make a business out of it. What we found when we started looking at the information and a project that I did that led into working with EIT Food on this gender bias investigation, where we were hearing more and more about the challenges that women were facing raising investment. And all of that led to a decision to really dive into what's behind the stories that women are telling us. And we put together the first ever data set in, at the end of 2019, it was released, that 
illustrated the lack of money that women were able to raise through their businesses. So it's been a long, my point in answering your question, Matt, is it's been a long journey leading up to the kind of state of the industry now where there's just incredible amounts of money, apparently double the money in 2021 from 2020 and almost double the money in 2020 from 2019 that's flowing into agri-food tech sector. But women are receiving 3% or less. Women-only teams are receiving 3% or less of those funds. If you want to talk about what's happening right now, over the last year and a half since COVID, the situation for women has gotten worse. It was bad. It's been bad. There are lots of great efforts, and George is going to speak to what he's doing to improve that. But it's not been great, and it's gotten worse. So this is a real moment of reckoning for looking at the opportunities and fostering and investing in the success factors for women-led enterprises. George, I mean, as an investor, you know, can you make any sense of it? It sounds like you can't, but I mean, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job, but why is this happening? Well, we still have a way to go ourselves and we have to walk the talk, but it seems like either the data's wrong, which it probably isn't, or the investors are wrong and they've done the wrong things, basically. And they haven't, they don't have the right headlamps, they don't have the right research. Some of them probably should be shown the door, actually, so... It doesn't sound very smart what they're doing. Why? We're in a war for talent. It's about talent. It's not about deals. It's about talent. And we need to find the best people. And many of those are uh, women. And we need to encourage them and mentor them. They don't get enough mentoring. They don't get enough encouragement. And that's my job is to inspire people to do things. The money is kind of a latent thing we do alongside the rest of it. And I think of the people who inspired me, female. I think of Kathleen Merrigan and the bollocking she'd give me if I didn't live up to this. And the bollocking I'd give myself or Human Rights Watch. We're proud of what we do. And we need to continue to execute on this basis. And the shame if one of my entrepreneurs found out that George did not walk the talk in this thing. Can you imagine? It was supposed to be an impact fund and low carbon decarbonization, supply chain efficiency, sustainability, all those are great. But what if you leave out the whole human rights piece, including female empowerment, LGBTQ, then you're basically missing the whole thing. You can do the SDGs, but you can't leave out the rest of it. It starts with the other stuff and then the sustainability stuff comes easier, I hope. But you can't do low carbon and leave out women. It's it's not possible. Yeah. If I could just build on on something George said, if any smart investor is going to want to invest in the best opportunities, but the risk taking is not so much in the business, if it's a smart woman with a great balance sheet coming to you to pitch their company, it's not so much the investment that's the risk, it's sort of what's inside of you that's the risk. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how can I go outside the norm? How will my peers perceive me for starting to invest in women? And, and that's really one of the really important places we need to start in terms of the awareness and advocacy and education that Lakshmi was, was speaking about earlier. It's sort of, we got to do all the bottom-up stuff, everything you mentioned, George, right, about mentoring women and making sure that they develop skills, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have to accept women for who they are how they run their businesses, their own perspectives and projections for their businesses, which might not be 
I don't want it to be a $100 billion business. I'd like it to be a $1 billion business. And to accept that actually there's plenty of room in the world for $1 billion businesses and the investments that need to go into it. So I think it's it's both top down and bottom up that needs to happen. And what happens is that the folks in the middle, which are the women, are going to be the ones that get the benefit from both of those efforts. Again, this episode was a standout because it was just absolutely full of amazing data and insights. And it's really obvious that, um, you know, both Karen and George are super passionate and that really comes across. So I really encourage everybody to listen to this one. Some of the stats are sobering, to be honest. The stat that you heard there from Karen, so despite the fact that there is more and more money and investment flowing into the agri-food system, only 3% of that is going to women-only founding teams, which is shocking. And, you know, worryingly still, Karen also says that going through COVID, that that situation has actually gotten worse. But there were some real positives in here as well. And I think you heard both Karen and George there both speak to the fact that this is really about talent and it's about investing in the best opportunities and that is where the focus should be and i was really inspired by george and the work that he's doing and he's obviously kind of walking the walk here and he's really embraced this culture in his own company and like he said himself you know you can't have impact without diversity so whilst the conversation was sobering, it was also very inspiring. And hearing from changemakers like Karen and forward-thinking investors like George remind us that the right people are out there pushing for change. And on this topic, we also, of course, need to listen to the future generations coming up, so the future leaders in the food system. And this is actually something we did in episode 84, where we spoke to our what we are calling our future food makers, so our Gen Zs who have been diligently working with EIT Food all the way through 2021, creating what they are calling their menu for change, which they actually presented one of our prestigious conferences called The Future of Food back in the tail end of uh, 2021. Really inspiring episode, really amazing group of young people looking to change the food system. So really encourage everybody to listen to that one as well. Just in general, you know, big takeaway here is let's all make inequality in the agri-food and agri-tech sectors really a thing of the past. So it has been really inspiring to revisit some of the conversations across Series 3 that we've had on the show. And I'd just really like to summarise what has therefore been the menu for my big takeaway. So producing food sustainably is absolutely possible, but we need to stop wasting it first. And then we need to look to scale it up using more sustainable agricultural approaches like regenerative agriculture, for example, to feed the growing world population. Then let's all promote healthy diets by appreciating the real value of the food that we eat. And we can't let money and speed dictate it all. Diversifying our protein sources could be a major part of the solution towards sustainable and healthy food. And finally, to fix the food system, we need the best talent and the best opportunities. And that means we need to embrace diversity and inclusion and all work together. So thank you, everybody, for listening to season three. It's been a total pleasure hosting all of these shows. We'll be back soon with series four, where we're going to have even more amazing guests, even more amazing solutions for you all to listen to. And in the meantime, I would really encourage you all to look back through our previous episodes 
as there are a wealth of entrepreneurial and innovative solutions just waiting to be discovered. This has been the Food Fight Podcast. If you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu and please also join the conversation via the hashtag EITFoodFight on our Twitter channel at EITFood. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. That's it for now. See you all for season four.